Welcome to the Habits of Leadership podcast, brought to you by Cut Through Coaching, helping leaders and their teams to thrive professionally and personally. Hello and welcome to episode 43 of the Habits of Leadership podcast. My name is Dan Hasler from Cut Through Coaching and before we kick off today's episode, I'd just like to tell you all about the Habits of Leadership Academy, which we're proud to say is now open for registrations. The Academy is a group coaching program facilitated by myself as well as my colleague Tim Perkins. The Academy is going to see professionals coming together to support, coach and learn with each other to develop what we call your habits of leadership, around three essential pillars of emotional intelligence, leading effective teams, and navigating change. If you're a fan of the podcast, you're really going to enjoy being able to dip into the concepts, the frameworks, and the theories that are discussed here in order to apply them back in your own context. So each month over the course of 2021, we'll get together in really small groups over Zoom to ensure that um, everybody has a really authentic and immersive learning experience. You'll have the opportunity to get advice on specific challenges that you're facing in your role. If you head over to habitsofleadership.com, you'll be able to find all the information you need to see if the academy is for you. Numbers are strictly limited, as I said, to ensure those really small groups. So if you are keen, can I suggest that you get in quick. But now, Let's kick off with the episode. My guest today is Therese Joyce. I first met Therese about 10 years ago when I was traveling through Canada on a study tour looking at how positive psychology could be used in education to not only um, enhance well-being but also enhance uh, performance not only of kids but also of the uh, teaching staff. Today, Therese is in Australia, and she works as a well-being strategist at Fisher Leadership Consultancy Group, where she explores the synergy between well-being, engagement, and performance. Therese, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Dan. So we met, um, I was just looking at the, the dates, actually. We met almost to the day 10 years ago um, in Toronto, Canada. I was on a, a, a study tour on behalf of the New South Wales Education Department. And I hadn't scheduled to meet you, if memory serves me right, and I'd, I'd, but I'd scheduled to meet a, a chap called Tayyab Rashid. And I thought I was just going to go to his um, university and sort of see the research he was doing. But Tayyab, being Tayyab, then invited me back to his house. I met his family. And then he said, and you must meet this person, and you must meet this person, and you must. And one of those people that I must meet was you. And you were at the EF International Language School in Toronto there. And you were, he was particularly excited to tell me about the work you were doing um, around positive psychology and implementing that with with staff and so I'm keen if we just kick off that conversation because that's where we first met and I thought it'd be the most obvious place to start um, our conversation today so what what were you doing 10 years ago? Um, That's a good question it feels like a lifetime ago Um, I had just done a workshop a couple of days with Tyab and Donna Mayerson from um, the VIA Institute so that was around character strengths and was experimenting with our staff so really getting excited about positive psychology what it means what it looks like and had basically put it to the team at the EF language school to say do you want to try this out and test out the theories that people who um, 
increase their emotional intelligence and use what we know about the research into the science of engagement and happiness and well-being in the workplace are then able to reduce stress, perform better and enjoy their work more. So it really was an experiment for six months um, and using a whole bunch of elements of positive psychology and that was the first time that I was um, working with it and applying it. So there were definitely a lot of mistakes or things that I would do differently now. Um, but it was fascinating to to have that with a team who were really doing a great job. It was a really great group of staff and in the whole idea of Jim Collins's good to great saying, well, how do we go from being a really good team to seeing how we can perform even better and work together uh, at a completely new level. Yeah, right. Really. Well, I know a lot of people, mm. I know a lot of people who'd be listening to this podcast, they'd be really interested in how do we help our teams go from, you know, good to great. And they're certainly keen on increasing engagement and performance and all that. But I'm also aware that there's probably, you know, a fair proportion of people listening to this who aren't necessarily fully aware or fully across what you mean when you talk about positive psychology or or character strengths, for example. So I'm just wondering if you could just share, you know, what what is positive psychology? I mean, because I know it's not about being happy all the time, right? Absolutely not. So I would say um, positive psychology originated from the idea that a lot of psychology has tended to focus on fixing what's wrong and the negative sides of what can go wrong with our psyche. And um, the important work that's done around areas of anxiety and depression and um, disorders, psychological disorders, and positive psychology is the scientific study of when we're doing well and how do we perform at our best, how do we live at our best, how do we feel good and do well. It's not exclusive of people who have mental health issues, um, so it's not on the same spectrum of either you've got these issues or you're doing really well um, because we know that people can flourish in many ways even when they do have a mental health disorder as well. So positive psychology is really the study, I would say, of positive outcomes. It's not always pleasant as we're going through it and it's not about, as you say, being happy all the time, but it's about looking at where am I at, what am I facing in life and what are the strategies that I can use to achieve the outcome that is a good outcome for me. So that could be managing stress. It could be dealing with remote learning through uh, lockdown. It could be um, how do I work with someone who's really irritating <laughs> and what are some ways that um, I can shift my mindset or shift the way I'm feeling and traveling through work and life um, to perform or to have a better outcome. So it's not all about performance either, mm. but it's about um, feeling, achieving something that you want to on a level that's a positive one in the end going through it, Does it if that makes sense. Yeah. And so it's not, as you say, it's not just the, the the product, but it's the process, and it's the it's not just the ends, but it's the means in which we're 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 getting there. Is that is that? Am I hearing you right? Yes, and I think when you think about things like character strengths, and people talk about strengths of 
kindness and courage and compassion and leadership and part of part of the field of positive psychology I would say has there's almost like a ethical um, area of that of being a good person being a decent human being and um, increasing just the basics of kindness and respect and that common humanity mm. so you've with, that was stuff you were thinking about 10 years ago in in Canada um, but you found yourself now back in Australia and in that time you've worked in education but right now you're working um, at a leadership um, consultancy with the, the title well-being strategist and I'm really interested in the combination of those two words because in my experience, a lot of the time, you know, in, in organizations, be they corporate, sporting or, or, or education, you know, there doesn't tend to be that much strategy in and around well-being. It seems to be like it's, it's almost like a, a nice to have, you know, rather than a, than a need to have. So I'm curious on the number of levels really about the work that you're doing, but specifically, you know... If you could sum it up when somebody asks you, uh, you know, at a dinner party now that you can go out, you know, every now and then, um, what do, what do you what do you say when people say, "Oh, well, what is it you do"? Um, it's good question. I think when we're looking at, I would say, strategy is looking at creating sustainable change, and I'm a pretty pragmatic person, and I am also a very happy person sort of um, genetically optimistic but really want um, the work that I do to be very much grounded in helping people to um, at a deeper level so not just the surface um, well-being um, interventions such as fruit bowls and yoga and um, important things like having an EAP our employee assistance program, yep. but really the idea of the strategy saying, what is it that we need? How can we change the system? And at a dinner party, if somebody said, what do you do? I would say I'm a wellbeing strategist. I'm working with a program called Breathing Space. And I think people can understand when you talk about the need to just stop, take a breath and really assess how we're going what's happening and what we're doing where I'm working now is working with senior leaders and executive teams to make sure that they have the breathing space to check in with their own well-being um, we use um, physiological data we have wearable technology for people to track heart rate variability and stress and anxiety or stress and recovery both through the day and evening and through sleep and to get a baseline of where people are at on a physiological level we use um, psychometric surveys to check in with how people feel that they're doing and then a combination of increasing awareness and understanding around what well-being actually is and what changes can be made and personal confidential coaching as well at that level to really tailor it for people who are not only responsible um, to a large degree to, for the well-being of their teams and within the organisation, but they also uh, need to be able to make sure that they're looking after themselves as well and that they're in a space where they are able to provide that support for other people. Mm. What's the appetite like for that? 
kind of work? Is it so? Do you feel like, like are you getting people who are they're already convinced and they don't need any, you know, that they just want it, or or are you finding that, um, you know, there are certain domains or certain sectors which, or certain types of organisations which are yet to fully embrace the, the, the philosophy, if you like, of, of well-being as a strategy? It's a really interesting question. I think there's, I think well-being is definitely much more on people's minds today than it certainly was 10 years ago. It is seen I think mental health is a conversation more people are having, but we also see that there's a lot of people who really feel um, unable to have these conversations. And we're, on the one hand, there's a duty of care for organisations, for CEOs, boards and executives. There's a duty of care for the mental health and wellbeing of their staff within the organisation. But there's, I think it was 58% of senior leaders said they didn't feel confident and comfortable having conversations around mental health. And they just, I think there's a little bit of wariness of what if I say the wrong thing? What if I am opening up this Pandora's box and I don't know what to do next? And that's where I think it's really important for people to understand that there is a range of support and professionals available to help with that and people can increase their understanding and capacity to know what is the right thing to do what are the small changes I can make what are the habits we can embed within our organization to move towards a a more psychologically safe and well place for our staff to be working Mm. I I love the fact that you use the word habits there um, given the title of our, our podcast and also a couple of themes like the psychological safety and things like that. And I'd, I'd, I'd really like to maybe touch on some of those pragmatic and real practical things people can be um, thinking about doing, but maybe we'll just circle back to that shortly because I'm, I'm, I'm wondering, so, you know, I'm, I'm curious, I guess, to dig into the relationship between well-being and high performance or high engagement because again, I'm, I'm only speaking from experience, but sometimes um, I find people present me with a kind of like a, you know, a binary, you can either you can have one or the other, you know, people can feel well and safe and calm and relaxed. But you know, we've got to kind of lower our standards, or we lower our it's, or we higher our standards, you know, we really push for this, but it often in their mind is going to have to come at the expense of well being and using that term really quite broadly. I'm wondering, if if you've come up against that sort of frame uh, and if you have how do you get past it or if you haven't how would you generally um, describe the relationship or the synergy between well-being engagement and performance um I th- again i think it comes down to an understanding and there's very different perceptions of what well-being means well-being to me doesn't mean a lack of any stress whatsoever we're all just coming into work and we're having a nice little chat and a coffee and everything's lovely because stress isn't necessarily a bad thing and I think for a lot of high performers in the workplace they want a little bit of stress and they want um, rather than having distress but eustress which is that um, crux where high demands meet high skills so when we're looking at 
um, Cheeks Empty High's work in flow yep. and the idea of being in a situation where you're, you have the skills, you have the strength and the competency to meet the goals, but they are really stretch goals ahead of you. So they are putting you sort of on the front foot to say, right, it's going to take focus and um, a lot of work and there'll be some stress in there too, but it can be a good stress in, in reaching that high performance. Sometimes it's easier for people to think about it from a, when they think of performance in a sports setting. So if we think of the high performers that we know in the sports arena, again, they're not, it's, um, they're not just going out for a, a play game with their mates. It's a really, um, there's high demands. There's a huge amount of work that goes into the preparation before a game. And there's a high level of stress as well because they are really focused and they're using all of the muscles that they've been working on and strengthening over the the years sort of leading up to this match. And I think in the workplace, it can be similar. Hopefully we are all growing and learning throughout our careers and um, that high performance comes often from a place when there is a high demand. But the well-being side of things is when we're psychologically well in that space. So if we look at, I think this year is a perfect example to use because we often think about we can handle stress, we've got difficult times at work, we've got deadlines coming up and we work towards the deadline and I'm sure many of the listeners are familiar with the idea of you get to the final day before your two weeks holiday or vacation and then you get sick on your first week of vacation because your body just has had enough um and I think this year a lot of people haven't been able to take time off it's been absolutely relentless and then we're really heading into an area where that stress becomes chronic stress which then can lead to burnout which has been defined by the World Health Organization as a um a syndrome occurring in the workplace from stress that's not managed well. And when we have that um, relentless stress and there's no strategies around um, nurturing our well-being through that, that's when people can break. That's when burnout can happen. That's when there can be real damage on a psychological level. And it's unrealistic to expect that people can perform at their best when they are feeling absolutely stretched and there's nothing left in the tank okay so you've made a you know a really uh, valid and valuable case for uh, well-being in the workplace so i'm going to assume best intentions i'm going to assume that most leaders want to be aware of this kind of stuff and i'm going to also assume that most leaders um, would like to enhance this when it comes to their um, team but perhaps as you as you alluded to earlier perhaps you know they've not come through um, an environment which has spoken much about this you know go back 10 years and no one was really talking about this kind of stuff so I guess I'm curious to hear what sort of strategies or what kind of ideas you have for leaders who kind of want to take the temperature, for want of a better phrase, of, of the well-being in their uh, teams and, and then perhaps uh, with some ideas or strategies as to what they can then do to enhance it? I think 
there's not sort of a one size fits all and there's certainly not a list sort of a checkbox list that you can say okay we've done these 10 things so everybody will now be well and understanding that I guess is the first point really building on the relationships that people have within the workplace so the psychological safety and the level of trust is not something that you can just demand from staff and it is based on the relationships that people have with their leaders with their um, colleagues and the the culture of the workplace um, which does make a very big impact on how people are feeling at work and how open the workplace is to having these conversations and so I think on that first level it would be increasing people's understanding that mental health and mental illness is not a it's not a bad thing to be talking about and in fact it's a really important thing for people to be talking about and to have that openness of people being able to to say when they are feeling stressed or anxious and this doesn't mean in front of everybody at all times of the day but to to have opportunities for people to speak with someone to put their hand up and to say I might need some extra support and help and for leaders to feel confident in doing that I think they really do need to increase their understanding and awareness of what mental health looks like and um, basic things I mean for all of us the basic fundamentals of getting enough sleep drinking water exercising and nutrition are really fundamental for our physical health which has an impact on our mental health um, the systemic change would require really looking at how does the organization how do the processes work how is this set up what what is helpful for our staff and what may be hindering their potential to both feel good and to do well in the workplace and again with that understanding of well-being not being just about happyology but the improvement on the bottom line so research from um, Deloitte found four to nine times the improvement on the bottom line for investment in mental health and some Australian research by um, Beyond Blue and PricewaterhouseCoopers found that um, for every dollar that was invested in mental health and wellbeing programs, the return on investment was $2.40. So there's a positive impact for the organisation. I would say that's not the main reason to do it. The main reason to do it is because we don't want to be breaking our people. We want to be helping people to to live well and to um, to be mentally healthy and to help them to deal with mm. the different stresses that come along. So for leaders, that's um, yeah, increasing their awareness and then making small changes where they can and having the conversations with their people around what's working, what's not, and where possible having um, expert advice and professionals come in to help with a strategy or to, to investing in something like breathing space where they are supported in enabling their leaders to move forward 
and to understand for the rest of their career how they can make psychologically safe workplaces that perform mm. well. What's the nature of some of the changes that you, you're talking about? Obviously, they're going to be different, you know, in, in specifically different for various people, individuals and teams. But I'm curious, what's the nature of the, the, the kind of uh, changes that we're, we're trying to help people make here? Again, it is yeah, quite different depending on the team and the people and I think an understanding of that too because humans are very complicated. Again, I'm going to use 2020 as an example of um, people going through the same situation and the idea we're all in this together was a nice uh, message of solidarity. The reality was this year has been very different for people depending on their situation at home depending on whether or not they have um, children remote learning depending on who they're living with if they're living with someone or not um, and how they feel about the people that they're sharing the space with and I think also the different levels of anxiety that people have so some people who have been very strong and stoic and never had any issues for 20, 30 years of their career have found this year really challenging. And while we've seen it has in many cases exacerbated the challenges of people who have mental health issues, there's also some people who've never had any issues with their mental health who this year have for the very first time felt knocked sideways and um, that it's been something that they've heard other people talk about but they've never had to deal with it themselves and I think bringing that down to what are some practical things that we can do what is and that's where habits is wonderful because habits can be just really small changes done on a regular basis which create sustained change so having habits around Rituals through the day, if you're working from home, making sure you you do something in the morning which signifies I'm starting work um, where possible, having a place where you can close the door at the end of the day and still create that boundary between home and work. Um, ensuring that people have some outdoor time or exercise in their day and it doesn't mean you need to go for a 30-minute run five times a week. It can mean that you start off with just going for a walk to the coffee shop and back um, before you start work or going out at lunchtime for just a little walk around the block. And embedding that as a, a ritual and a habit in your day so that you're making that space for the change. And those, I think it's um, BJ Fogg who talks about the the tiny habits and doing sort of, I think he goes down as far as flossing one tooth or doing one push up after um, you go to the bathroom. But these really small habits, which can sometimes be a circuit breaker as well for that um, rumination and chronic stress to go, okay, now I have to do my, my three push ups, I'll do that. And it's sometimes enough to shift the mindset from that chronic stress that's happening. What I'm hearing when when you're talking, uh, Therese, is the idea of just being deliberate about things and, and having a real mindfulness rather than just mindlessly, I guess, going through the day and just getting into the grind. And as you say, like, you know, 
I'm sure working from home has been wonderful for some people, but I'm sure it's been that's all they've done at home since they've started because it's just so easy. There's always another thing they can do, and 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 the boundary is now you know well and truly blurred. Putting in, as you say, habits, but then being deliberate about the 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 time and as you say, the ritual about how do we start our day, how do we break our day, and then how do we end our day. Um, is, is being deliberate um, actually a positive psychology strategy? I I would say it is. I don't know if it comes under the umbrella of positive psychology within the positive psychology world, but I think if we mm. narrow down to who's branded themselves as a positive psychologist then we are really limiting ourselves too. So I, the more I've learned about um, how do we live our lives well, I think the broader mm. my reading has become too. And I think I, I don't even know how many people have said to me this year, as well as in the last 10 years, I guess I should just be more positive and my immediate response, particularly this year, is no, do not do that. Don't mm. try to be positive because if you're feeling really disconnected or really not in a great space, trying to be positive and following this sort of happy self-help idea of looking in the mirror and saying a mantra is actually causing more, more likely to cause more damage than good. Mm. And so I would... I've recommended the acceptance commitment therapy and work by Russ Harris to quite a number of people. And that idea of it's really the serenity prayer in psychological terms of accept that sometimes life sucks. And sometimes there's a huge amount of stuff outside of our control and accept that you can't make things perfect right now and commit to doing something that you can do. And that's where our choice our understanding what's within our area of control and that deliberateness in action is really, really important. And, again, we don't – there's so many things that are going on um, with in the world around us that we cannot change or we can only make small decisions around, but there are, there's many things in our life that we do get to choose. We do get to choose – how we respond to people. We do get to choose what we do with that first or the first hour of our day, but also every hour through our day to a degree. We we can even use mm. ideas like job crafting to choose the way we do our work for the outcome that's agreed upon with our um, organisation, but to make choices through that and to be an active participant in our life and I think that allows people to feel a greater sense of autonomy and control um, which is really important as an anchor especially in a time when there's a lot of things beyond our control so I think if it's not considered officially positive psychology it should be because it's helping people to achieve a positive outcome I've been playing with the idea of proactive psychology and I'm you know so it's it, that idea of positive incremental steps forward or whatever but yeah it's it, it's quite interesting like you say if you once you label something I mean this is an Instagram meme or someone said it once you know once you label something you limit it right so if, if 
if we sort of look at well what works um, and and it does it work because I'm I'm assuming I, I, well I'm wondering if you've come across you know um, in in your work things that you thought would benefit people whether it's leaders or teams and it turns out that from their perspective it, it really wasn't helping. Yes, <laughs> the uh, gratitude <laughs> wall at work. Ah. Oh. Um, So the idea of everyone writes something they're grateful for and writes a nice message of gratitude and they pop it up on the wall in the staff room and people come into the staff room and feel really good, that works so well in theory, the reality, and that was something that um, is sort of a bit of a go-to, but the reality is it's really hard to get people to make change. So when I tried that at my workplace um, in Toronto, I, I wrote up a message and popped it on the wall, came back to the staff room, nothing was there. I wrote a few more in different coloured pens. I did one in caps lock. I <laughs> used my left hand. And I ended up really writing a whole bunch of them, putting them up, and people would come in and go, oh, it's going really well, isn't it, Therese? I'm like, yeah, have you written one yet? Mm. <laughs> um, I think that's that's the challenge and that's also sort of the gritty stuff that I love of how do we actually make change happen, not how do we polish over it with um, pretty colours, how do we mm. um, shift these changes and that's where the conversations I've had with people, sometimes those little light bulb moments that sometimes people have, which are different for everyone, but that sort of realisation of, oh, yeah, I can... I, I can create some boundaries in my life that will help me but will also set expectations for the people that I work with to make um, our future work together better for both of us. Uh-huh. And the I think boundaries is a really important one for people to understand and learn and to see how do I do this in a an acceptable way so it's not about saying to your boss sorry I'm setting a boundary that I'm not going to be doing any of those rock tasks because I don't like it but in saying I'm I'm going on the weekend I'm going to be turning my emails off I'm not getting them to my phone and I will respond to your email on Monday when I'm back at work mm. and having that or if we're away on a, a holiday to have that on your out of office that's an acceptable boundary for most people. In some workplaces, mm. it, it won't be, and that's where it, it will be context specific. Um, and I think this year, a lot of the conversations I've had across a range of different sectors have been people having this moment where they realise there are opportunities for me to make a choice and to take different action. It's, it's fascinating that idea of boundaries, you know, with the workplace. I mean, the amount of people who tell me that the you know the last thing they do before they go to bed is check their emails you know and I say you know and often I say why and their answer nine times out of ten is oh you know just in case you know just, just in case what <laughs> but they'll do it and then they'll find something and they'll ruminate on it they won't sleep properly they'll get up you know and it's it's fascinating and I think one of those conversations that we then often have with because I, I, I often go then back into an organization I'll say look you know here's a canary in the coal mine you know, lots of your staff check their emails at, you know, 11 o'clock at night, just in case. That that shouldn't be, the, in my opinion, 
that shouldn't be the case. You know, there should be better established boundaries, norms, behaviours around that so people can confidently, you know, switch off, not just metaphorically, but literally yeah. switch off. Um, I'm wondering if we could sort of just round out by sort of thinking about you know do you so we spoke there about you know the gratitude tree as something which you know virtually every every positive psychology keynote speaker um gets up and talks about and and in theory everyone as you say people go oh yeah that'd be great that'd be great but then you put it in it works great in theory doesn't great works are great in the staff room um i'm wondering if what's the flip side of that what's the flip side where you've got maybe a couple of real go-to's which you've yet to see not work if there's such a if there is such a, a strategy um i think sometimes it's the really practical stuff so technology is a big one and technology use and for people to understand how they can use technology um for their best interest rather than being a slave to it um and that is um as i said about the out of office um the idea of using delay emails so writing the email when it's in your mind but delaying it until the next week or working hours to send it um yep. sending it to yourself so if you want to just send it and get it because sometimes people are worried that it's going to be sitting in their draft folder and they'll forget about it just email it to yourself i'm a big one for emailing myself lots of things and then when i get to work i can um process so you feel popular yeah exactly <laughs> oh, sorry. so many emails and then i tell everyone i got so many emails from me um the i think a big one is just people want to feel seen and heard and respected and valued and that's not something you can just check off and go okay have i made that person feel valued check yeah. and that comes yeah. from what i see is really the best kind of leadership in someone who who does really value their staff, who really has that unconditional positive regard for the human that's there, is still able to have those really difficult conversations and to set the parameters of what is expected and required in the workplace, has the emotional intelligence to be aware of how other people are feeling um, and the courage, I think, to have those conversations too. And um, from that, I, ha I have a few go-tos that I would use in, in workshops and sessions which do require a little bit of um, a setup and it, in, I guess, how you introduce this to staff so it doesn't feel like you're just saying, oh, here, watch this little video and that'll make you feel better because it has to come from a genuine place within you. But there's a um, an amazing TED Talk video um, and it's many years, it's probably more than 10 years old now, um, Louis, I think it's Schwartzberg, it's on gratitude, but it's a beautiful yep. um, footage from around the world and, again, connecting that um, sense of, humanity the common humanity and i think we need more of that in the world and in our workplaces and i think for leaders to be courageous enough to say yes we want to 
meet our targets. We need to keep our shareholders happy. If we have shareholders, we need to achieve the goals that we've set at the start of the year. But we and we also know that each person who works for us is a person with their own challenges and stresses and how do we help them to learn and grow and to benefit from being part of our workplace and to be better able to deal with stresses and challenges that they'll face through the rest of their life. I think that's what a, that's a, a great uh, place to end, that, that idea of, yeah, if you, if you are going to take on a leadership position, yeah, considering it your role to help your people, help your team become better people i think you know that's uh, you know not just better for ethically but just feel better and yeah how will people benefit from being part of this team i think that's uh, a, a quite a powerful um question to ask because a lot of the time it's you know in schools they talk about being student-centered you know in which is obviously important in businesses they talk about the client obviously important in sport they talk about the results obviously important but if we can put the and in that as well and how do we help you know our people benefit from being part of this how will they be better as a result of this I think that's really powerful and then you also have a workforce of people who are out there telling other people what a wonderful organization you are to work for genuinely um, and speaking very highly of that well beyond their time at the workplace and I think we all we all know who have been the best bosses we've had and we've all had nightmares that we've worked with and for. And to be able to see someone who genuinely has that... um, Unconditional positive regard, I think that's a great... Yeah, yeah. it is. It's humanity, (laughs) compassion and able to achieve high performance as well. This isn't, as we said at the beginning, Mm. it's not about just creating a, a fluffy, nice place to be working and we aren't making any profit or we're not actually getting done what we said we would do, we can definitely yep. have that high performance within high pressure with respect mm. and space for people to live yep. and work well. Thanks very much um, for your time today, Therese. If people are interested in um, your work or connecting with you, what would be um, a good way to, to find you on the interwebs thing? <laughs> the interweb, they can contact me at um, tjoyce, T-J-O-Y-C-E, at fisherleadership.com. And also our website is breathingspace.global. So people can contact me through there and um, very happy to talk with anyone and love hearing stories about people in their workplace as well. So thank you very much, Dan. Hey, no worries. I'll put those links in the, um, in the show notes as well as a link. I'm, I'll find that Ted talk uh, from Louis on gratitude and we'll put that in there as well. So people can check that out. But yeah, um, once again, thanks for joining us. And um, hopefully when the world returns to a bit more of normality, uh, we'll be able to catch up face to face. That would be lovely. All right. Cheers, Therese. Cheers. Take care. Okay. Thanks, Dan. See ya. So as I mentioned there, if you would like to check out that TED Talk about gratitude, if you'd like to contact uh, Therese to talk about anything related to what uh, we spoke about today, then all those links are in the show notes. Also in the show notes, you will find a link to our website. 
where you can check out more about our Habits of Leadership Academy. As always, if you enjoyed today's show, then please ensure that you share it, like it, comment on it, and subscribe to it wherever you get your podcasts. If you head over to the website, habitsofleadership.com, not only can you learn about our academy, but you can also send us a message. What do you think of the show? Who would you like to see on the show? Do you have any questions that you would like us to tackle in an upcoming Q&A? But until our next episode, thank you so much for listening. We really do appreciate it. And take care. Take it easy.